0: There. Happy Monday. You are listening to the Junk Jam Hour right here on Radio Free Brooklyn. Radio Free Brooklyn is the nonprofit, community organization, and freeform internet radio station streaming original content by New York City artists and broadcasters 24 hours a day, seven days a week. It is Radio Free Brooklyn's goal to empower and amplify the otherwise unheard voices within our communities. Now, on the Junk Jam Hour, it is my objective to share and highlight the artistic and creative journeys behind the impressive projects and contributions of some of today's most talented, underground, and groundbreaking artists and entrepreneurs. Of course, my special guest today, like me, was born right here in Brooklyn, or as the living land acknowledger that she also is, would call it, the unceded native land of the Lenape people. To parents who immigrated here from Haiti, of course, Land that was also stolen by the Europeans and French from the Arawaks and Dinos. Nevertheless, this young woman has emerged from the deep, dark depths of her ancestors' oppression to become a bright, gifted star, finding purpose in giving to others through the art and craft of theater performance. While she originally pursued edification in the practical fields of nursing and management, she was somehow bound to her innate childhood pastime of performing in dance and piano recitals, and her true calling came knocking when an opportunity to study at San Francisco's American Conservatory Theater appropriately arose. Since then, she has made a name for herself in productions both big and and small, including the Hillborn Theater's productions of The Color Purple and To Kill a Mockingbird, of which she was the recipient of Best Supporting Actress in an Adult Drama at the 31st Annual Artie Awards for her live stage portrayal of Copernia. Otherwise known as Cal, she was also nominated for her triple role portrayal as Essie, Aunt Ardell, and Kiki in Jamie Woot- Wooten's. A, that's a past writer for the Golden Girls as well. Um, and I believe Half and Half. Love that show. Uh, production of Mama Won't Fly at the Martinez Campbell Theater in California. And she also lent her talents to New York City's very own production of The Day Harlem Saved Dr. King. Her early accolades also extend to her as a gifted writer, including her con- contributing short piece for the Amazon best-selling 20 Beautiful Women Volume Three. And, of course, as a playwright, she has concluded another stellar performance of her own short play just this past weekend entitled, Jemou, a short story, excuse me, a short story, a short play and story about family and the healing power of food, specifically one that celebrates Haitian freedom. As an educator and activist, she's a dedicated advocate, uh, she helps to foster the ideals and principles of diversity, equity, and inclusion in all that she does. Not only is she a teaching artist working tirelessly to bridge DEI inequities in marginalized communities and classrooms, but she also serves on the Teaching Artist Affairs Committee as a co-chair with the New York City Arts and Education Roundtable and has rolled up her sleeves to help launch the Arts Are Essential campaign. Please help me welcome (laughs) Brooklyn-born, Queens-bred, Bay Area-tested, award-winning actor, writer, educator, and activist firmly planted at the intersection of theater, arts, literacy, advocacy, and social equity. Miss Anjou Hippolyte. Hello, Anjou!
1: (laughs) Hi, Christopher Albert. Oh my goodness.
0: Thank you so much for joining us.
1: Thank you for having me. Thank you for having me. I'm I'm very happy to be here with you today.
0: We are happy to have you, um, and very honored. Now, um, there's so much to talk about, so why don't we delve in? Um, okay. you you grew up in a in a Haitian household right here in Brooklyn. Yeah, I actually I
1: was born in Brooklyn and we I grew up in Queens. Ah, five five
0: years old. My parents bought a house in Queens. You know,
1: that's love it. We do. And I grew up there. Yes.
0: That's right. Now, oh, now, of course, you lived with, uh, Haitian immigrants. Did you, did you grow up speaking, uh, Creole?
1: I learned to speak Creole, not initially. I learned to speak Creole when I was nine years old. One of my mom's, my mom's eldest sister came to America.
2: Uh-huh.
1: And she was living with us at the time. And I didn't understand anything she was saying. <laughs> she didn't understand anything I was saying. And so it was a lot of mommy, mommy to come and translate. Yeah. And eventually the way we all learn our primary language, I learned Creole just from being around her and picking it up. Got it. So now I'm fluent. Yeah. And I'm thankful for that. I really am. I don't think my parents, they're no longer with us, but I don't know that they would have taught us how to speak Creole. And by us, I mean, my siblings and I, Right. My, my brother and I were born here and my sister was born in Haiti. So she knows how to speak the language and she knew it growing up. But my brother and I, being American born, I don't know that they would have, you know, taught it to us.
0: Right. I mean, I mean, a lot of us grew up that old, way, just English, yeah, right?
1: Exactly. By nine years old, you would have, I would have had the, the language and I, I didn't understand the language or speak it until my aunt came over. And so, yeah, I'm thankful for that.
0: Okay. All right. So, 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 were there other than your aunt being around? Obviously, that was, you know, you, you were a young girl, nine years old. Uh growing up, were there um I, I know we, we when we think of dualities, especially in home life in the outside world, it's culture, it's heritage, it's all these things that could differ from American life, right? Yeah. Were you yeah. was that something that you're were ever aware of, or did your parents um really just settle into the American life right away?
1: No, everything was very Haitian. Yeah.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> Love it. It's interesting that you say that everything was very Haitian. My mom's cooking was very Haitian. Yeah. I loved it. Even the music that was played in the house sure. was very Haitian. Like I knew like I could hear the music and I would know like what band it was just hearing it play but I wouldn't ever understand what they were saying And then when I learned the language and became began excuse me understanding what they were saying I was like, oh that's what they're saying but I would dance to Haitian music growing up with my dad when we would go to events people would stand in circles to watch me and my fa- my father and I dance but I never knew what they were saying. My parents would talk I would never knew what they were saying but yeah. everything but the food, yeah, the food, the culture all of that stuff was was, was Haitian and I didn't realize, how Haitian we were in that regard, until I started as an adult meeting friends, and they're like, "You never had collard greens," and I'm like, "No, no,
0: it's it's you a different had, right. Yeah, it's, it's it's just, just yeah. I mean, I mean, the black had, experience color? is like, just no. as the black experience is just as amirated <laughs> as the Latinx experience.
1: Yeah, and it, and we're not a monolith, and that's beautiful. Right, I, there's so much beauty in that, like being with my African-American friends and hanging out with them and eating collard greens. One of my girlfriends taught me how to cook collard greens. So I make collard greens. So now collard greens is a part of, you know, the foods that I make. But growing up, I never had collard greens, but I'm not, and I'm not ashamed to say that, but people look at you like, you never had that? No, I never that. Yeah. what is that? Show me, teach me, you know?
0: Sorry, my my computer's gone nuts. It's like, yes, it loves that. Okay. Share <laughs> on, share on. Cheer I love that chair. Um, <laughs> So now that's great. I mean, I mean, it's, it's, it's a little different because growing up, you know, Puerto Rican American here where our neighbors and just family members were for the most part black. <laughs> we grew up with all of that as well. Mm-hmm. You know, so definitely collard greens wasn't something foreign, but now, um, you, did you always navigate when you you know when we talk about just being culturally aware which you were um did you always navigate through your life through the lens of the arts i know you are a big reader um when did you start writing or did you initially you know i know you did dance i know you did piano (laughs) was that something your parents had you do
1: i'm like wait a minute when you, were, when, my bio, when you were reading my bio or whatever you had written out for me, I was like, how did he know all of these things? I'm like, did I tell you
0: these things? Well, you we go, regardless of what information you give me, we go scouring the internet for everything. Okay,
1: <laughs> all right. All right, P.I. Christopher <laughs> <laughs> Albert, that's what I'm going to call you from now. On. I was like, how did he find all of this? Where is he getting this information from? I was very surprised. I was, I was like, wow, okay, all right.
0: <laughs> You're deserving. Yeah.
1: Thank you, thank you. <laughs> yeah, go
0: ahead. And- well, I was asking you, and- you know, I mean, when did, I guess, your foundation in the arts start? I mean, I know you, let's start with, you know, reading and writing. I know you are a big lover of yeah. reading.
1: Yeah, was so that growing something- up in Queens, I had a library card. Uh, and my parents, my mom specifically, took me to the library every few weeks when your books were due. I would go back, return them, and get more books. Oh, right. And that was just learning that
0: discipline early on, yes.
1: Mm-hmm. That was just a thing we did. And I have a library card now. Yeah, <laughs> yes. I had one. I, I moved to the Bay Area some some years ago, and I mm-hmm. had one when I was in the Bay Area. Like I just always have a library card because I've always had one. And, yeah. and then we... And so books have always been a, a part of my household from a young age. We had an encyclopedia set that my parents bought for us when we were very young. So when we weren't at the library, yes. we were looking in the encyclopedia to do research for work, for school and projects and things like that. I, ho-
0: and- I hope it wasn't Britannica. I don't <laughs> you guys still paying the- that off?
1: I don't remember the day, <laughs> honest, I remember we had a set. Yeah, we always had, had books. i love that my parents had had me in dance and piano at a very young age i think i was six years old when i started and that's kind of old so to speak but that's i remember we were in Queens, so that's when it began and my brother took guitar and karate
2: wow i love
1: that was always a part of, of my upbringing and I wanted to, I actually wanted to dance and sing. I didn't want to play the piano. I didn't appreciate the piano then. Yeah. I appreciate it now. Sure. I, I can't, you know, I, I, I'm sure I can, I can recall things in terms of like what the music
2: saw, theory.
0: Yeah, but, sure.
1: But I wasn't one of those people that listened to music and played it. I read music. So um, I actually
0: had. Which comes in handy now. And
1: yeah, it does. And <clears throat> so, yeah. So, so And I've tried to kind of get back on that bandwagon. <laughs> I'm so far, yeah, I'm so far removed from it. But like I see people playing the piano like John Legend. And I'm like, ooh, that yeah. could have been me if I appreciated it more. But I wanted sure. to sing and dance.
0: Well, you know? look, you, and, you have your own path. And, and as you know, as someone who is, you know... Expels just as much of these little tidbits as anybody else. You are a true believer. You know you don't really compare your path to John Legend, of course.
1: <laughs> no, I don't. But what I'm saying is, seeing him and appreciating his,
0: yes.
1: music, and his music, I was like when he first came out. Not, I, I still love and appreciate. But I'm just saying when he first came out, I was like, oh my god, that could have been me because I love to, I wanted to sing, and so if I, I was just thinking like, oh, if I had appreciated the piano. I could have been singing and playing the piano, yes. which I used to do because I had sheet music that was like Christmas songs and different theme songs from different TV shows, and so I used to play the piano and sing jingles at Christmas time for the family.
0: That, oh, I love that. You
1: know, so so that, that was something that I used to do.
0: <laughs> so we, so you were always the artiste, and then you, you, you get a little older. And you you start studying nursing, management, finance, for obviously practical reasons. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What was that aha moment when you went and said, okay, I'm going to now be a practical adult to coming back to your journey into performing arts? Because somehow you ended up in San Francisco. Yeah.
1: You know, Christopher, at a young age, I never thought of it as, Oh, I'm a performer. Yeah. Something I did. And yeah, I I didn't think of it in that way. But I do recall telling my parents once upon a time, I rattled off a list of different things that I wanted to be. And ironically, nursing was on that list Mm -hmm. and being a doctor and acting. And singing and dancing.
0: (laughs) All of the above.
1: Yeah, it's just interesting how, how I sort of took one journey and then ended up on another journey. But I think it was very clear for me freshman year of high school. I was in college, and I remember I was in my dorm room, and I was crying because I was trying to figure out, like, I was trying to decide, should I move back to New York? I was in Massachusetts at the time, and I was like, should I move back to New York and, and try to pursue acting, or should I move to L.A.? And I talked to myself, I was like, I can't be homeless and living out of my car. Yeah. So I just have to stay in school and, and, and do this. I never thought at that age, at that time, I never thought that it could work the opposite way for me, that it could actually work out. Right. You know? Right. And because my parents were no longer alive, mm-hmm. for me, it was really about survival. It was like, I have nobody to fall back on. That was sort of my thinking at that time. Did
0: you, was it harder to, not just you you know and obviously sometimes we just have to do things despite of how scared we are right mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. even though your your parents have had had passed on was there ever a moment like okay I know if I do this they would still be proud of me do this meaning take this journey take this risk take this Take this avenue, take this path somewhere else.
1: To do the acting.
0: Yeah.
2: And
1: performing. Yeah. Yeah. It wasn't it wasn't so much about them and them being proud. It was about how do I take care of myself? Mm. It just
0: doesn't work out. I love that. That's just that's just settled. So settled in the now. <laughs> Cause this is in the now. This is your life. You are the sole creator and 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 just, you're the one person who has to make this choice.
1: Yeah. And, uh, and because because I didn't have them, because I always think of like, and not that your parents are going to take care of you for the rest of your life. But at that age, at 18 years old, yeah, I, I envisioned, and especially how the Haitian culture is. Sure. In my family, it was like, you stay till, with your parents until you're, you're married and ready to move out. That kind of thing. You know, and your parents are there supporting you and taking care of you. And especially the kind of parents I had. And so for me, it really was like, they're not here to take care of me. I have no fallback plan, so I'm not going to do it. It's too risky. But again, yeah. not thinking. And and, and, and now it, it, it's just interesting how much experience, years, maturity plays into it because that was a deficit thinking. But it also was part survival too. Yes. Whereas Now I take more risk. I take. So many more risks in, in terms of what I want and and how I envision my life. I'm like, this is what I want. And if I declare it, I'm going to get it. Because Absolutely. There won't be road bumps, you know, or anything that or any hindrances or obstacles or challenges to overcome. But if I see this that I want and I declare it, I'm going to get it.
0: That's right. I love that. Even if it
1: comes to me in a roundabout way, it will be mine. And so I didn't have that sort of, I didn't have that access to that thinking and that mindset when I was 18.
0: All in hindsight.
1: Yeah, not because I wasn't a positive
0: person. (laughs) Well, we don't blame you.
1: I just had myself. Yeah, yeah. It really was like the only way I'm going to survive and make something out of myself, so to speak. You know, is if I go to school for something that's practical and yeah. something that's quote unquote safe. We get and, it. And, and that I can rely on. So, you know? and so in th- the reality, nothing is safe and secure. And
0: no, anyway. nothing is guaranteed ever. Yeah. No, not your so job, young, not anything. You, know,
1: you think that. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, I, and that's where I was at that time. And I don't blame my young self for that. I've, I've had so many experiences in life because of the various trajectories and paths that i've chosen yes you know so let's it's talk all good let's
0: talk about some of those Anjou because you went to the american you studied um at the american conservative theater um what was one of let's, your
1: let's be clear on that one oh. because i want to i want to clear i did go to acp but i took their evening workshop
0: yes which, and what's I your point
1: My point is they have a master's program. They have a master's program. And so when you say ACT, I don't want it to be confused with I'm saying that I went there and I studied acting and got a master's
0: Well, you studied and we never said you got your master's from it.
1: I know. I just want to be clear because, and the reason why I bring that up, Christopher, is because living out there in the Bay Area and just having conversations with people. Yeah. It comes up that way, not just me, but with other people too. And then it's like, oh, you said this and you, you
0: know. It's- let me, let me tell you something. That's I awesome. took the Juilliard evening division courses and guess what? That was a lot of money to pay for. So guess what? I studied at Juilliard. I hear you. I you're, hear you. you're deserving. It, it's a different program. <laughs> sure. It's a different program. We're not adding anything else to it. If somebody else is adding to it, then that's what they're doing. <laughs> you
1: know what? You're absolutely right. Thank you.
0: You're welcome. You are deserving. So, <laughs> so but but that's part of that's a decision you make. You wanna study, you wanna at least study. Yes. However, whatever the program may lie, this is where you wanna study because that is it. It's an elite. Regardless of how small the program is, it's still at an elite institution. What was one of your earliest memories of beginning training? You know, acquiring knowledge of the craft history, even the legacy of theater performance.
1: Oh my goodness. Can you say that again?
0: Just an earlier memory of, of just beginning. Oh,
2: beginning.
0: beginning. Any, any silly anecdotes in- or... <laughs> no
1: just not knowing where to go yeah you know to, to like i remember because when i decided to start taking classes it was that's another story in and of itself but i had a, a panic attack oh. and, and it it led me to call someone who then gave me some advice and and I took the person's advice and thankfully, and I was like, okay, I'm, I'm going to do this thing. And, and he had studied at ACT, and so I decided to go there. And so it was really just kind of just going with this flow, not realizing at the time that I was answering that, that call and that desire that I had all yeah. along. Yeah. You know? And so. I, I just remember classmates coming in with headshots, and I booked this commercial, and i like, <laughs> <laughs> where Where do I go to do that? Where do I go? And so they gave me the information, but initially it was just really my just taking the classes, just answering to to that panic attack, so to speak.
0: Now, one of your and
1: to the call, yeah,
0: and, and 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 persevering through that, right? Yes. Now, one of your first gigs was a role with the Actors Ensemble of Berkeley. Yeah. When (laughs) When we think of theater, even now, right, the world is expanding in terms of breaking down traditional, you know, traditions of roles, who can play what and where. But even at that stage, when you were starting out a little over 10 years ago, were opportunities limited at all based on gender or complexion or anything else? You
1: know,
0: if they were, Christopher... You didn't notice.
1: I, 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 and you know what? I, I shouldn't say that. I, I, I say that. No, because I remember, I remember there were. Yeah, a, I know that it happened. I know that there are stories out there that get produced over and over again, mm-hmm. and they're not for us, so to speak, in the sense that they won't cast a black woman, they won't cast a black man. They won't cast uh, a black queer person. Yeah. You know? And so I know that there are limits in that way. But I never let that stop me. Yeah. You know, I just I just go out once I decided to to do the thing, which is the acting, I just
0: full speed ahead. Yeah. So I'm gonna we wanna talk about some of those choice some of those Roles that you've played in, but I want to first ask you because I know you yourself, you consider yourself both dramatic and comedic actor, right?
1: <laughs> yeah, I'm funny, but people don't cast me. In yeah, so
0: why do you funny suppose funny. that is?
1: <laughs> I don't know. I don't know, but I don't think I'm funny, like, and not, I don't know, I'm not a comedian, like, I wouldn't go and do stand up, right? You know, I'm that's not me, but. My friends always think I'm funny and I laugh at myself all
0: yeah. <laughs> the time. I'm funny. Well I'm well funny. generally yeah. that's that's the that's <laughs> part of the craft of comedy is is taking that and translating it to a bigger audience who do not know you.
1: Yeah. Maybe I don't know how to do that
0: yet. You, you don't, that's okay, that's but don't is. be scared of it. Trust me, you'll be fine. So yeah. um Hillborn Theater, Foster City, California. Um, you played Caperna into Kill a Mockingbird. I want to read one of your quotes. It was not my most comfortable in that type of role, but someone has to tell these stories. Mockingbird brought me out of my comfort zone. How so?
1: Ooh, I don't know where that's from. I got to think back. (laughs) And that was the second time that I played Calpurnia. Mm -hmm. Mockingbird was back in twenty. Oh gosh, twenty sixteen which isn't a long time ago, but when you're playing characters, different characters... You're, you're living in that world. Them. Yeah. Yeah, and you shed them. You shed them. You, you, ah. You take them off. Yes. So, sometimes you forget things and you don't You don't know your lines anymore, you know, it's like...
0: Well, well, well. for you... I'm trying to think. One of the things you said is hearing the N-word at every rehearsal and production was quite overwhelming. Um, But you thought to use it as a catalyst to fuel your embodiment of this character... You said you had to dig deep to the core of who she is and ultimately who you were. Is that something yeah. you still do not remember? How maybe she helped you define yourself?
1: You know, I, I think I, I know what I was probably referring to because, you know, when we talk about like stories and we're tired of seeing like the narratives. narrative. Yeah. Yes. tired of yes. the mammy. Or
0: <laughs> yes.
1: Like that. And I remember that the director, beautiful director, beautiful human being, she's a friend of mine, but Dawn L. Troop. And I remember how she sort of directed me and coached me and, and just gave all of us some beautiful gems to, to help us play out various characters. And that goes from black person to the white people saying the N word. You know, we had a hard time with that production because of the nature of the story. And it's just interesting how you can do that story with one cast and it, and it just be a different experience when you do it with Right, one it's cast. just
0: a living and breathing the second
1: time, production. Yeah, yeah. The second time, the first time, I don't know that I experienced it in the same way that I experienced it when I did it at Hillbarn. There was just something about doing it at Hillbarn that just made it a little bit more visceral in the context of the story and what was happening in Makeham, Alabama at that time. Yeah. Like us embodying that story, it was just I don't know how to explain it, but but I remember Dawn reminding me that Calpurnia is not she's not like a maid. Like she has power in that house. Right. And she's a powerful woman and so I took that and and right. worked with it. Right. I mean, it just helped me to see the power in Anjou. Thank you for reminding me of that. Well, thank Calpurnia had to,
0: like any black woman at that time, had to survive. But she wasn't a victim, or yes, at least yeah. you know, in in any way. And she demanded respect, and she got it. Yeah. Um. Maybe not. Yeah, maybe not the way we it, we would define respect today.
1: Different and it's relative, right? Right. I mean, it's an experience, and most things that are experiences are relative, if not everything.
0: Which which wanna be absolute, but <laughs> right. but but for you, um even as uncomfortable maybe at, at at times as the production was, um, you know you you've stated, you know, someone has to tell these stories, right? If not you, then who? Why not you? <laughs> You know, once you made that decision to take on a particular role, especially one, especially in, in you've had a few of them that's centered on particular places and times, you know, they have context based in history that largely has obviously been of consequence. Do you feel a, a responsibility to get that right? Or is it just, or do you take it as a way to learn, gain access to this different experience that you wouldn't have had otherwise?
1: it's it's both yeah it's both really because i every character that i play is is an opportunity for me to learn and i learn from all of my characters i learn from from seeing theater and seeing other actors in in action and so so yes it is an opportunity to learn and i learned so much from my characters about the world about people about myself yeah. Myself as as a person A human being Walking this plane And myself as an artist You know And I don't feel As much a responsibility To do it right I feel the responsibility To be truthful Right To be truthful In my embodiment And that's going to be different For each character Right each experience. To just be truthful and tell the truth because you can tell the audience will know, so speak, you know, yeah. yeah, and you will know it won't feel to you to the question you asked before, it won't feel right, yeah, you
0: know. So, you've also played um Olivia, um, in the color yeah. purple, um, yeah. Uh, uh, a, a very that was at Hillborn, too. That was at Hillborn. So let's talk about yeah. that real quickly. So, now, um, first of all, you once said that the inspirational spark to acting was Alice Walker's The Color Purple. Yeah. Um, as you once said, we found it. I remember watching it and saying, I want to be in that movie every time I watch it. I am moved to tears, laughter, and I'm of other emotions for me the story never gets old and it fueled my desire to tell timeless stories that would move audiences as well now um anju this very weekend and 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 and, you know um i I know you had your third presentation of jumu am i saying that right (laughs) please correct me you
1: are jumu yeah you're saying it right we're
0: gonna get there but over this weekend while Jimu was going on, Oprah Winfrey instagrammed this. 35 years ago today, The Color Purple premiered. So it was you actually did Jimu on the 35th anniversary.
2: Get
0: out of town. Yes, and this is what, and this was just an accident, by the way. I've already read this, and then I started you putting together your interview, and I was like, "Wait a minute!" Oprah said something similar. So this is what she said: "I've never wanted anything in my life more than I wanted to be in that movie. When I read the book the first time, I bought copies to hand them out to people. I told everyone I wanted to be in the movie. It was that deep." And one fateful morning, Quincy Jones saw me on AM Chicago, said I should audition, and the rest is movie history, so here's to the powerful messages I still carry from that movie. And this was this past weekend. She Instagrammed that. <laughs> wow, Christopher. Thank you
1: for sharing that. Oh, my goodness.
0: So, so listen, if if, if, if we had to put puzzle pieces together just to know you're on the right path. so yeah you know a story like the color purple while it wasn't it isn't excuse me um, I say wasn't right because we don't get we don't get it in our it's not text that's offered to us in our schools for you know whatever reason um, BS um, while it isn't explicitly based on the outward acts of racism right? You know, um, Miss Sophia though is jailed for twelve years for being non-compliant towards white people in power. It still does stem from the internal effects of of how <coughs> racism, discrimination, slavery, theft of po- property. We can go on and on, right? One owns sovereignty. All of that had lasting impacts on uh, you know one's image of themselves, their own self worth, including. You know, the manifestation of self-respect, self-disrespect, and of course self-hatred, abuse towards other black folk and kin, namely women, right? There was misogyny, violence, and rape. Yep. I was about to say that. What about yep. this story resonate that resonates with you so much? And why do you think it is a still a relevant one to tell?
2: The-
0: and it could be from your perspective, whether as a reader or as an actress.
1: Yeah. So me as a kid growing up and seeing how and you know resilient is such a trite word sometimes i don't want to use it but just the resilience i'm gonna use it <laughs> the resilience of feeling like she did not let mr break her she did not let mr break her and a right. little girl i saw
0: that she chose and not I to be naive know. anymore as well, even though she was living right. in t- You know, she wouldn't have known that until hindsight. <laughs>
1: right. And I don't know if that is like something that my future self connected with.
0: Mm.
1: Because as a kid, I had a good childhood. I was happy.
0: Seeing that's of that's person the, person the, the testament to your parenting. parents' job. Yeah.
1: Yeah, that's something that I connected with at a very young age and I just, I was I was just very drawn in by her as an adult but then there was of course there's sadness so it does bring a myriad of emotions because seeing how Mr. treated her and all of the like awful things he did to her like just I mean you named him the her
0: stepfather things, as well
1: yeah. mm-hmm. we, you know it's just all of this ugliness but to see her a black woman just say you will not and break me like, yeah. you will not break me and it's just something that I guess it's my my me that connected to at that time and I was just like like you can't no you won't break me and I think part of me probably carries that through through life with everything and not in regards to like a man or relationship but just anything in life yeah I won't be broken by these circumstances I won't be broken by these experiences.
0: And because sometimes when we think they are a reflection of ourselves, right? These are the same people who are telling our family, you know, our kin. Sometimes yeah. it, it seems like, oh, it's acceptable. It can seem that way because it's coming from this person that you love, but obviously it isn't. Right. And that's that's a, a place that we all of us can come to, you know? So you played older Olivia, but if you could, um, Anjou, be any character of your choosing, who would it be? Mm-hmm. Sug. <laughs> <Shug>. I know <laughs> me too. <laughs> <laughs> Sister. So yes, you she stay on so my mind.
1: Fun. Yes. I used to sing that song, the song from the movie, Sister. I, was, yeah. I would sing it in my house. Listen, Suge is
0: fun. Of kind. fun, 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 fun,
1: fun.
0: Um, I know. Well, for me, of course, because I'm also the town slut. So, um, <laughs> and we love Margaret hey. Avery. <laughs> yes, Margaret Avery is it. It. Oh my she... God, you are too funny. So, um, uh, Anju Hippolyte, award-winning yes. actor, writer, and educator who works at the intersection of theater arts, literacy, advocacy, and social equity. And and now tech. I should have told you that. And tech. Which obviously has been... Well, COVID exposed a lot of it, right? Yeah, I'm
1: learning how to code now,
0: I said. That you're learning how to code. Access for women and, obviously, people of a certain color. Yep. Um, Yep. Right, because has coding... Always been a white man's thing. If we think, think of IBM, we think time. of Apple, see, right?
1: Yeah, all of those. When you see who's at the at the forefront and at the head of these tech companies, who are they? Yeah, we we know. We know. <laughs> we see. We know. <laughs> you know. Sometimes I don't like to to repeat or restate what's already. You know. I just I just think about ways I can work to to
0: dismantle uh, right or, or
1: break in through or whatever whatever verb you want to use
0: and for it's you like, what action can I do and for you it was code how did that happen I mean so, are you just starting uh, how far along are you into this yeah, journey I'm
1: a month a month wow in. yeah
0: so let's um, start let's start here mm-hmm. um, lack of access this is um, from you a lack of access is what keeps communities marginalized your community work of advocating for food justice and tutoring and mentoring incarcerated and um, adjudicated teenagers is aimed at disrupting this marginalization obviously a black woman who's coding <laughs> does the same so obviously we we sometimes tend and this is I guess this is what your point is we love and it's easy to just simply point out the problems but not be part of the solution.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Absolutely.
0: Um,
1: I'm, real, I'm really more of a doer than a talker.
2: Yeah. I don't
1: like all of my friends, they're always just like, what are you up to now? And they're like, what? You're doing this, you're doing that. And that's just how I move in terms of what I'm doing in communities too. Like, yeah, I might share something on social media, but I'm not touting what I'm doing. A lot right. of what I do is. Is a lot the people of people that I'm working with that know that I'm doing right,
0: a lot of the important know, work goes I'm unnoticed, sure,
1: yeah. So, and I'm okay with that. I don't need absolutely to know, like I'm doing this, that, whatever, yeah. I
0: know? mean, no one knows all of it that goes on behind. Yeah. So, what explain to us for those that still do not understand or who just re- for whatever reason, anyway, <laughs> what is DEI? How is equity in no way possible without diversity or inclusion?
1: <laughs> so
0: <laughs> We've opened D- up a
1: box. <laughs> is stands for diversity, equity, inclusion, and it's really trendy right now. Mm. You know, a lot of people are... Buzzword. On the bad, yeah, it's a buzzword. A lot of people are hopping on the bandwagon and trying to see how they can make their you know, organizations, more DEI compliant or what have you. And, you know, that's fine and that's great, but it's, and I was on a, a panel, I think a couple of months ago with some women, black women or women of color in theater talking about this very thing and how we're getting more calls now from boards or from different organizations to have us at the forefront. Hi guys, we're woke. Right. And one of the things that, that, really needs to happen and that's fine and all good but the reality is you need to to live it you need to believe that very a diverse group of people coming together makes the organization the experience whatever it is better for everyone yeah
2: yeah
1: not just because oh it's a black person or it's a black woman or it's a Person of color, or it's a queer person, and we want to make sure that we check this box right. to say that we have representation. So we're not anti this. It's like no, no, live and breathe that, live and breathe it. Yeah. And and with with the whole thing with equity, a lot of people try to equate equality to equity, and or whatever. And when you look at a lot of the situations that are happening in the world, it's because. There isn't equity. It's parity. So we're not going to, exactly, we're never going to get to justice of anything if we don't have equity. If people just don't understand that, okay. For all humans. For all humans. Thank you. Like this brown person doesn't have this versus this white person, you know? Yeah. We're not going to see justice when we can't even get food access, education, etc., etc., etc. in certain neighborhoods. If we don't have equity, we're never going to get to justice.
0: I love that. So, so,
1: and so, whatever I can do in these spaces, I love that the organizations that I work with, or you know, work with, I don't like to say work for, but the organizations that I work with, whatever I can do to be like, look, this is where we need to be, this is how, and really, like, not just do it because it's the trend. But do it because it's just—it's
0: the right thing to do. It's—it's—it's it's, it's not even about like how being the right thing do to do. do. This is how, how dare you deny
1: you- someone else an opportunity? So, like, why?
0: Yeah. Yes, and 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 that just comes from just a long-standing hierarchy of who gets to have access. Who doesn't? And then because it's been so ingrained, these institutions don't even know it.
1: I forgot what I was reading. I forgot who said it. I was reading something uh, a couple months ago on social. I was flipping through social. I wish I could remember who it was, but it was a black woman. And she said that the undoing, it's all of us that have to do it. Yes, yes, it's the right. people, but it's people of color too.
0: Right, right.
1: We're we're part of this system, right? We're in it, and so we live it and breathe it. I'm not saying the words verbatim, but essentially is like we live it and breathe this anti everything. Yeah. And so we have to do the undoing within ourselves too.
0: Yes, it's it's like it's like when some of us are you know, fighting or, or involved in one cause but then not realizing that it's still parallel to another cause. But that's not our fight, right?
1: You know what, Christopher, I always say this because there are so many things to fight. <laughs> no, seriously. When you start yes. looking at stuff, you're like, okay, healthcare over here, yeah. food access here, education. You make a difference where you fight, can. The The financial you know wealth gap when you start thinking about all these things you're like i tell people pick a cause and pick go a cause like and go that's
0: everything. right that's right
1: you can't fight everything if you're one person but you can you make, make a difference you affect change yes here if yes. this person is doing this over here you're doing this over here collectively we make a change
0: absolutely so anju yes. speaking of being ineffective uh, just change maker game changer um positively affecting the future um for others you are a graduate of the teaching artist project uh teaching artist project is a collective here we go the collective right because it takes more than one we don't get to where we're going alone guys (laughs) listen Uh, listen so, a collective of diversely experienced art educators training emerging and working teaching artists who are looking for a supportive community to engage in a self-reflective, justice-oriented learning practice in service of their teaching. I know you've worked um, with uh, the Young Women's Leadership Group, um, ninth graders, I believe. Yes, yeah, the high
1: school out in Queens. It's a high school in
0: Queens. Tell us a little bit about I that. I my...
1: I did my residency there. So the Teaching Artist Project is an organization that I found out about when I was trying to figure out how I was going to leave corporate and do this acting, do this artist thing full time. And because of who I am, I need to be able to survive and I need to have some sort of quote unquote safety net. I was like, I need to work. What can I do? And I really was digging into my passion. Because I was like, I don't want to leave corporate and do something else that I don't. Like, I already did this. I did the thing that I don't want to do. Now I want to do the things that I love. So I started Googling, how can I sort of marry my passions? And I literally put into the Google. I I did. I put theater arts, literacy advocacy, and social equity. And I found a program at NYU. Long story short, that. Sometimes you just have to ask. NYU had a had a forum that particular the following year, so 2016 they had a forum, and I remember talking to, I can't remember his name, but the head of whatever program I was looking at, and he said, "Anju, if you if you come to for the forum, I can have you shadow some classes, et cetera, et cetera." And so I I came to New York because I was living in the Bay at the time. I came I came back to New York, went to the forum, and at the forum i found out about community word project which is the organization that hosts theater teaching artists projects and i they had a i found out about their program that they train teaching artists around whatever your art discipline is right for social equity like how can you use your art for social justice and i was like this is my jam and so i applied I got accepted, and I was like, "Okay, I guess I'm moving back to New York." And that's how I found my way back here from the West Coast three years ago. Wow. The program, and then that summer, the following summer in 2018, I applied to a few arts organizations. I got hired, and that's when my career, my track as a teaching artist, started.
0: I love that, and 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 you know, this is just a testament to. Um, and and this is not to not this is not a judgment, you know. Sometimes jobs come calling you have to move you have to make big decisions but no this is moving about where you are yourself needed in terms of no this is the opportunity i want i'm going for it and that's how you move through life yeah um and especially once i started
1: acting christopher albert once i started acting it's it, it- my perspective, I was just like, I'm I'm doing what I want to do. And so my, that role that you mentioned earlier with actors ensemble mm-hmm. Berkeley, that was my first theater role. I did a few short films before that, but it was that particular role as Horatio that cemented for me that this is what I'm supposed to be doing. Yeah. I was like, I'm supposed to be acting. I was tearing up between scenes. And one of and I was like pinching myself. Pinching myself backstage, I was like, I can't believe I'm doing theater. And one of my castmates pat me on the back and said, you're doing theater, baby. Because they all thought that I had done it before. I was like, this is my first role. I've never done this before. And they were like, what? And so from there, for me, it was just this. I felt so good doing it. And it felt so right and and truthful to, to who I am and everything that I've wanted for my life and desired. And I was like, I'm gonna do this. And so, working full time, doing the acting thing, I didn't care. I was like, this is what I'm doing. Until I figured out how to get out of corporate, and, and, it, and took, it took some years.
0: It took yeah, it sure, four years. Yeah, four years. And and now you're helping, you know, you know, young men and women decide that for themselves as well. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. let's talk about your recent project. <laughs> um, yeah. yeah. Jumou, um, by Anjou Hippolyte, produced by Fuse Theatre, directed by Don L. Troop, at least this past weekend. Of course, Don again. It's Don. Don. Um, there was... Uh, well, first of all, Jumu is a short play, and you are now a playwright, Anjou. A story about family and the healing power of food, and of course... It it's surrounds itself around the Haitian tradition of making Jumu. Tell us a little bit about this lovely short play of yours.
1: Yeah, so in August, there was a call for submissions from Tiger Bear Productions. Mm-hmm. And I remember sending the call because I got it personally to my inbox because one of the producers, I had just finished up a production with with him. And so I was sitting at my computer, thinking, "Who can I send this to?" And I was like sending it to some folks, and then a voice said, "You should submit." And I said to the voice, "Submit what?" <laughs> <laughs> I swear to goodness, submit what?" "I don't have anything written." And the voice said, "Write something."
0: There you go.
2: And I
1: said back to the voice, "Write what?" Yeah. And the voice did not answer. But I started typing and Jumu came out and I did not have an idea. I've been working on a feature length script for the past two years and I need to finish that up.
0: God but bless you.
1: That's a different story. Absolutely. And Jumu was nowhere, because I have ideas all the time about different stories and I'll put it in my notepad and I'm like, okay, you're going to, this is a short story or this is a an idea you have. Mm-hmm. Once you finish this big script, you can work on these ideas. No. Because I can't do multiple things at a time when it comes to certain projects. Sure. And so Jumu was not even on the dome. And it came out that, that Sunday, and it spilled out, and I was like, what? And so I, I, I was like, I finished, I wrote it, and then I read it, and I was like, oh my gosh, I, I, I like this. You know, because I don't always like things that I write. I was like, I like this.
2: Yes. And
1: I I actually let Dawn read it the next day. She said, oh, Juma, I like this. This is nice. I said, okay. I said, well, I'm going to submit it. I submitted it. They accepted it. And then I was like, hey, Dawn, you want to direct (laughs) it? And she's like, sure. And so, yeah, it wasn't something, Juma wasn't something that I had planned or had been thinking about. It came out that particular day. And I'm so thankful that it came out. Yeah, I don't even know how to explain Like, people ask me about it. I'm like, I don't really know what to say. It just came out.
0: So, so in thinking about what Jumu Jumu itself represents, um, it's uh, a, a tradition, it represents- a Haitian tradition, you know, the day that, the, uh, which dates back to January 1st, 1804. We got some dates here, guys. The day that a Haitian slave and revolutionary uh, leaders declared Haiti's independence from its French colonizers. And to celebrate that liberation, the soup became a symbol for freedom. Um, and 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 obviously, obviously, just your own creative freedom. <laughs> you took that liberty. You did. De- you had. You you declared that you weren't gonna have any limitations. So what? It wasn't on your to do list. So what? You had no idea what it was gonna be. So what? You know, this was gonna have to come out of nowhere, and you were gonna have to sit down and write something it, fresh.
1: It spilled out of me. Yes. Like, like writing. It's funny. I, I took a workshop recently, and the facilitator says writing comes easy to you. I said what? She's like, it doesn't mean that you won't have hiccups around the, along the way right. or you won't, you know, have writer's block or something, but it comes easy to you. I was like, oh, okay. That really came, like, that just came out of me. It came out of me. Like, I'm writing this script for the past two years and I'm trying to, like, I'm at the point now where I'm struggling, like, what are these, and I'm trying to listen to the characters, like, okay, characters, what are you saying? Who are you? Where do you want to go? What's your journey? Jumu and I don't know if it was because it was a short. Yes, could be because they specifically said that in the call. It was like no longer than ten minutes. Yeah, and maybe that's why. But it just spilled out of. Well,
0: we you can you can say that, but maybe it's also a well. Well, maybe it's also a a testament to the long told. It sounds cliche, but write what you know. Mm -hmm. You write what you know. And, and it's organic it's original
1: <laughs> and one of the things too I have to say is the theme that they were looking for was something around pride and joy mm. That was what it was the theme was pride and joy and so yeah
0: I love that and sharing your that's stories and that's um, any and more any more uh, any more productions <laughs> planned or
1: for Jumu? yeah not at the time one of the things that few Smears our the artistic director over at Fuse, asked me about when we first got on the phone after she told me she wanted to produce it, Stacey I can't pronounce her last name so I'm not
2: gonna butcher it. <laughs> but she asked me
1: she asked me what do you see this as as a longer, lengthier piece? And I said, I I've thought about it. She's like, What do you want to do, Anjou? And I was like, well, she's like, we can help develop this. I said, well, I like talk back. She's like, I do too. Let's do a talk back. And so that's what we did on Saturday evening after the presentation. We had like a talk back and we had people in the room on Zoom and got them into different breakout rooms and really talked about different themes and sort of what what they populate from the play and different things. So I'm going to get all that information I love that. and use it. What as a gift. Fodder. Yeah, as fodder
0: to continue. <laughs> yes, to you continue use that as this fodder. Soup, this literary soup. <laughs> so, Anjou Hippolyte, thank you so very much for hanging out with me. I know the hour went by so fast. We have so much more to cover. We just never have any more time. Um, Thanks for having me, Chris. I know you are also part. You you are still uh part of a residency Artisty residency program with the Haiti Cultural Exchange. You are artist yep. in residence until March twenty twenty one. Um, you guys can find um, about that as well. Um, she is also a contributing writer to um, Amazon.com's best-selling author, Saba Tekles, uh, uh, 20 Beautiful Women, Volume 3. Uh, 20 more stories that will heal your soul, ignite your passion, and inspire your divine purpose. You So you have a short in there as well, right? Yeah, I have a chapter in there. Oh, a whole sure. chapter. I love that. Yeah. Um right. Go ahead. I was going to
1: say, it's my journey to a purposeful life, is the title of my chapter.
0: I love that. So, for you guys, can find out all about Anjou Hippolyte on Instagram and Facebook at A N J U H Y P P O L I T E. For everything we do here, you can find out about us on Radio Free Brooklyn. And for everything I do, you guys can go, just go to Jucky Jam. Com. Thank you so very much, Anju, for hanging out.
2: This episode and all episodes of the Junk and Jam Hour can be streamed on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, iHeart Podcasts, Google Play Music, and simply tell Alexa, play the Junk and Jam Hour. Thank you.